0: All right, if you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, why are you doing that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and powerful and that it's, uh, it is is going to speak to us tonight. God, we are, we are in your presence right now. We have assurance of that through it, your word. We know that your spirit's here and he's moving in our midst. We pray that, that as he's moving that we would receive, that we would um, not hold back from whatever you might want to say to us, but that we would really let it go deep in our hearts. I pray that you would just be glorified in our midst, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So tonight we shift gears in the New Testament a little bit, and we go uh, from—we're in the writings of Paul, so in the New Testament we had the gospels which are which are the history of jesus's time on earth you get the book of acts and then we shift into letters written to the churches uh by the apostle paul and tonight we're actually shifting into letters written to individuals and so first and second timothy uh start that off and then there's the letter to titus philemon we actually covered a couple weeks ago uh because of where it fits in chronologically but we're in, uh letters that are written to people and so you know, we don't know a ton about Timothy. We know a little bit about him, but not the Scripture doesn't give us a ton of information. But we know a little bit about this letter and in its context. At the time that Paul's writing this, Paul's in prison, and Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus is a really interesting church in New Testament history because uh, Paul would pastor there for about two and a half years, and that was after uh, the man Apollos. Had, had been there sharing the gospel, and scripture says that he was mighty in the scriptures and, and eloquent in speaking. He was a brilliant man. And Aquila and Priscilla, who were two of Paul's closest friends in ministry, were there as well. And Timothy would wind up pastoring the church for a while, and eventually the apostle John would pastor this church. Uh, John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, moved to Ephesus, and John pastored the church for years and years and years. And so the church of Ephesus was a church that had a lot of background. It had a lot of experience. They had heard the word really well taught uh, by, you know, by the Apostle Paul, by Apollos, who's super eloquent, super insightful into the word of God. And now Timothy is, is there as a pastor. And, and he's gotta be aware, he's gotta be feeling those, uh, the, that expectation of responsibility that's falling on him. And so Paul's writing this letter to encourage Timothy in what would have been a very intimidating ministry role. And he's writing to him as a pastor, but also as just an individual, as a friend. And so this book really, uh, it's written to an individual, but it has a ton of application for us, and specifically has application for anybody who's in full-time ministry. And that only makes sense if you've been paying attention on Sundays, because who's in full-time ministry? Everybody. What is ministry? The word ministry is really the word service. A minister is a servant. And most ministers today who go by that title have forgotten that description. But a minister is a servant. So to be a full-time minister means you're a full-time servant. You're a full-time servant of the Lord and a full-time servant of the Lord's people. And so you're just doing it full-time. It has nothing to do with where money comes from or whatever else. It has to do with, are you responding to the call of God on your life? And so the book of Timothy, of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy next week and Titus the week after that, are all super relevant to anybody who is in full-time ministry. If you are in the service of God, these books have application. And, and there will be parts where Paul is going to address specifically the role of leading in a church and some of the you know, specific challenges that can go with that. But the book is too ministers. And so that's who Paul is writing this to. In this book Paul's going to focus on a couple things because remember Timothy is going to be feeling way in over his head right now. And so Paul's going to really emphasize primarily one thing in this book and that is godliness. Paul's going to use the word godliness in this book. Uh, I think it's 11 times. He's going to talk about godliness. And really if you want like a summary for this book it's about godliness and focus. Paul is going to tell Timothy, stay focused on godliness. And that's, the, that's really the summary message of 1 Timothy. And that's the encouragement that Timothy needed in a ministry situation where he was out of his league. Okay? And that's really, anytime the Lord calls us to a ministry, we're out of our league. Because he's calling us to something that requires his strength and his power. So by definition, we can't do it on our own. And so we are out of our league. So if you're out of your league, what do you need to do? You need to focus on godliness. And that's where Paul is going to go. So we're going to try, um, try to actually read through a pretty sizable chunk of the book tonight. Uh, and we'll get through the whole thing. But we'll hopefully uh, not have to skip over too much. Um, so ch- chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's Paul's standard introduction, but he adds mercy because, you know, Timothy's feeling way unqualified. He needs a little bit of mercy right now. Verse 3 As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Paul says, okay, just like I told you when I left for Macedonia, stay at Ephesus and instruct certain men, I'm thinking there's probably a couple, you know who I'm talking about, uh, not to teach strange doctrines. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Don't get distracted. Timothy, if you're in ministry, if you're teaching the people of God the Word of God, then what do you need to do? You need to not get sidelined by myths and endless genealogies and strange doctrines. We don't need a bunch of hokey explanations or, you know, five point sermonettes on how Jesus ties into the current film culture or whatever else. He's like, that's not what you need to teach them. You need to. The goal, he says, the goal of our instruction, verse five, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the. That's the objective. That should be the objective of any person who's in leadership in a church. And as we're looking at this book, you're going to see some points where Paul says, "Hey, this is you know a little more specific to a person who is in leadership in a church." And here's what you should be teaching the people. And so, if if we're not in leadership, we look at that and say, "Okay." here's what people in a healthy church should be being taught, so therefore here's where I should be growing. So the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That marks a healthy church in the eyes of Paul. Paul really doesn't care if a church understands genealogies and and myths and strange doctrines, but he wants the church that Timothy is pastoring to have love from a pure heart. That is a church that ought to be marked by love they ought to have a good conscience these people should be walking in the purity of christ and they ought to have a sincere faith they ought to know what they believe and they ought to believe it fully they don't need some sort of faith that's part christianity mixed with just a touch of buddhism and a bit of native american spirituality and, and whatever else they need a sincere faith and so what paul is delivering here is again timothy you're in full-time ministry what do you need to do You need to focus. You need to not get distracted. In verse 12, he's going to, and we will jump a little bit. He says, verse 12, "...I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus." It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, as as the foremost sinner of all, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, hey, while we're on the subject of instructing, let me just pause and remind you of the purpose of your calling. You were not called, and I was not called, Paul is saying, because we were so holy, or because we were so spiritual, or so brilliant. He says, I'm call- I was called because I was the chief of sinners. I was the top sinner. And God called me, not because of anything I did, but because to demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, Do you know why God called me? So that anybody from here on out could look at my life and say, wow, I bet God could actually save anybody. Including the person who I think God can't really save. Paul says, That's why God chose me. It's not because I'm great, it's because I'm actually so ungrate. And he says, Timothy, don't you basically don't you forget that's why God called you. Welcome to the family, right? We are the family of losers that Jesus Christ decided he could be glorified through. And so. That's what he says. Now, verse 17, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen? He's saying, hey, you know what? I was called because God had grace on me. You were called because God had grace on you. And so if we're in a full-time ministry position, if we're servants of God, all we have to look at when we talk about the calling of God on our lives is to say, wow, to God be the praise and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Because he deserves all of it. None of us have ever done anything to remotely qualify us to deserve honor. And so he's saying, hey, this, all, this is all about focusing in ministry. It's all about seeing God glorified. Verse 18, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So he's saying, hey, look, this is what I was called. This is how I was called. The same thing applies to you. Fight the good fight, not because you're qualified, but actually because you're unqualified. Because God's redeemed you, live like it matters. Live like it should impact your life. And so he's gonna go on to verse chapter two. And now he's gonna start giving instruction for Timothy in, in leading a church. And we're in this, we're gonna see just an immense amount of practical application for what does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy Christian look like? What should our lives be marked by? So he says, first of all, and first of all is a phrase that uh, we use so much that we never really stop to consider it, but I love it as a phrase because it has so much weight to it if you think about it. First of all, of all that's going to come after this. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul says this is first. This is first of all. Then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. First of all, the first thing you should teach as a pastor, Timothy, the first thing that should mark your ministry as any person who's in ministry in service to the Lord. Paul says, I'm urging you. You got to let prayers, petitions, and treaties and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Your life should be marked by prayer, as the first thing that stands out when people think about you. Paul says, and, and, and not just, and, and we can kind of wrap our get stuck in this idea that prayer has to be some sort of theological exercise, and and it's not. Prayer is a conversation. It's an interaction with God, and so see it as a conversation. In a conversation with with a person, generally, you know, you kind of give them a state. Sometimes if you're catching up with somebody, you give them a status update. You tell them things that you're worried about, things you're concerned about, things you're thankful for. Paul says, that's what you're doing with the Lord. You're in constant communication. And bear in mind, do it for all people. Even the people you think are chief of sinners. Because Paul was chief of sinners at one point in time. Somebody else is chief of sinners right now. And God wants to save that person too. Because God here, he says, desires all men to be saved. There's a teaching in the church sometimes that God desires some or most people to be saved and that he created other people just to go to hell and and tough luck for them. Sorry, that's unbiblical. Paul says right here, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He says, for there's one God and one mediator. And, And he says, for this I was appointed a preacher. I was appointed a preacher, Paul says, to urge people to pray and to make them understand the gospel. That there's one God and one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Jesus Christ. And that prayers, petitions, and treaties, and thanksgivings ought to be made on behalf of all men because God desires all men to be saved. That's what Paul's saying. That's Paul's role as a teacher and as a preacher of the gospel. That's the role of every single one of us. To, to live a life marked by prayer and to understand the gospel. Now he's gonna break down just a little bit and he's gonna give an exhortation to the men and an exhortation to the women. So he says, therefore, verse eight, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Verse nine, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now you might think, boy, he gave the men a lot less work than the women. Now I'm not a woman. But let me tell you something. He said, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Now he's not saying that every time you pray, you need to stand and raise your hands above your head and, and speak in a deep voice. But what he's saying is, I want the men to be marked by prayer. I have no idea how hard it is going to be for you ladies to do the things Paul tells you here. I know for a fact it's really, really hard for men to let prayer be their default MO, right? When the printer is jammed, prayer is, prayer is not what we need right now. What do we need to do? We need to rip that thing apart and get that piece of paper out of there, right? Car, battery won't start. We don't need prayer. What do we need? We need to pop the hood and find somebody who's got, another, who's got a set of jumper cables in their trunk. Right? What, what do we need? Men, we live in this default world where we, we have this idea in our subconscious that prayer doesn't matter. Paul says, I want the men to be marked by prayer in a healthy church and in a, in a healthy life. And he says, for the women, I want to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, et cetera, et cetera. He says, here's, and so uh, here's, what he's, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying it's wrong for a woman to make herself attractive. God created beauty. God loves beauty. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But he's saying that shouldn't be the primary thing in a woman's heart. He says, let her clothe herself with good works. Right? If someone's going to describe a Christian woman, hot should not be the first word that comes to mind. Right? Godly, you know, I mean, I mean, it's fine if somebody gives a whole rundown and says, and you know what, she's actually a very pretty lady. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're, if you're living life as a Christian woman and that's your objective, Paul says, you're, you're missing the point. And he says, also, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man to remain quiet. And we take that pretty conservatively in this church and say, you know what? Paul is saying that a woman shouldn't have a pastoral position in a church. Okay. And some people look at that and say, wow, the Bible's so chauvinist. Well, back up. He says a woman should receive instruction with submissiveness. Understand what this is. And, and understanding the context of the world that Paul's writing and what he's saying, he's saying, I want the women to learn the doctrine. He's saying, actually, I believe women have the capability of learning and understanding the doctrine of Christianity. This is in a world where women were useful idiots, right? Women existed to bear children and provide physical pleasure for men and not much else in the world Paul's writing to. And Paul says, the women in this church ought to understand the gospel, The women have the ability and the capacity and the responsibility to understand the gospel. So he's not demeaning women at all. He's elevating them tremendously in this culture that he's writing to, right? He is is saying, you ladies have the ability to really understand the truth. So understand it, right? So men need to have a life that's marked by prayer, a faith that is marked by prayer. Women need to have a faith that's marked by truth and understanding, it's not marked by emotion or, or am I you know, dressing well enough to make people think well of me? It needs to be marked by doctrine. What, what does the gospel say? So chapter 3, he's going to kick a little more into specifics for uh, actually leading a church. He's going to say, hey, if you're going to appoint somebody as either an elder or an overseer or a deacon, here's the qualifications they need to meet. And, and here's what you should be expecting in terms of character and responsibility and maturity in the life of these people. Now, when he talks about bishops and overseers, that's basically a word for uh, pastor. Okay, when he talks about deacons, deacon is a lot like minister, just a servant in the church. If you wanna serve in the church, here's the responsibilities that, that should be a part, of, a part of your life. Here's the, the action that should be part of your life. And so he gives the really very straightforward, but if you wanna look and say, what, is, what does God expect of a mature believer? Well, here's the list. 1 Timothy 3. He says, you know, an overseer should be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must manage his own household well. And he he goes on from there. And he says he shouldn't be a brand new convert so that he won't get conceited prematurely. He needs to have a good reputation with people outside the church. And, And that's the role of 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 an overseer or somebody in a pastoral position. A deacon ought to be a person of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. Um, And he says, you know, women in the same way, women can serve in the deacon position. Women, which basically like, like being a minister in full-time ministry is just serving in the church. Women uh, should be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So he's giving just a rundown of, here's what responsible Christianity should look like. And then in chapter four, he's gonna shift gears again a little bit. Paul doesn't uh, just while we're on the subject or not on the subject, Paul writes like an Easterner. Alright, sometimes you know, we live in the Western world where we have like bullet points, right? One, two, three A, three B, four, five, six A, six B, six C, six A, Roman numeral I. You know, we kind of we like it. Mm mm mm. It's not how the Eastern world works at all. In the Eastern world, you just, you tell it, right? And so sometimes it can be a little, it can feel like he's jumping around. um, And that's because in essence, that's what he's doing. He's jumping around. So chapter four, he says, um, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. So people are gonna fall away from Christianity. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, People are going to fall away from Christianity and they're going to subscribe to the doctrines of demons. And they're going to be, verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You catch what he said? He said in later times... They're going to be people who fall away from Christianity, and they're going to subscribe to the doctrines of demons. They're going to try and teach you what the demons want you to believe. And you're kind of, you're bracing yourself for what is he going to be. And you know what they're going to teach you? To not get married. And you know what else they're going to teach you? That there are certain foods that you shouldn't eat. And you kind of think, you know, if you were a demon, like, I was thinking it would have, like, been just a little more spicy or something, right? But, uh... But, what, what, but Paul says here in the Word of God, these are doctrines of demons. And why? And if, if they feel kind of innocuous, kind of like, really, that's it? Well, what are they? What are they? These are means of, of quantifying how holy you are. Because all of a sudden, once you subscribe to these, oh, you're married? Well, God still loves you, but of course that means that you didn't have the self-control to resist your passion long-term so God loves you, but you're not quite as holy as, as some of the celibates in the world. Oh, you eat pork. <laughs> well, we know that God still loves you, but you know, in the Old Testament, God wouldn't let the Israelites eat pork. And so obviously, God's got a thing against pork. And if, if you're eating pork, it means you, just, you know you understand grace, but you really don't understand holiness, right? And so I'm happy for your grace, but I'm going to walk in holiness. And, and what it is. Is there, there are these ways of, of making, making us feel like we're just a little bit holier than somebody else? And Paul says that is a lie from a demon. There is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself holier than any other Christian. There are two kinds of people in God's eyes. There are the holy and the unholy. If you believe in, in Jesus Christ and you're saved, you're holy. And so there's nothing you can do to make yourself more holy. Now there are, there are responsibilities you can walk in that are going to bear fruit in your life, sure. But to say, oh, I'm more holy because I do or don't marry or because I do or don't eat certain foods. Paul says, no, 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 You've got to understand that is a lie. So if you want to eat pork, God bless you. Eat as much pork fat as you want. Now, pork sometimes comes with health consequences. That's a separate matter, right? You can eat, you can eat. If it, Paul says, It's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. It's meant to be received with gratitude. If you're thankful for the food you're going to eat, God bless you. Just know that it may clog your arteries and it may kill you early. But if you want to eat it and you're thankful for it, it's not a sin. So he says in verse 6 in pointing out these things to the brethren, you're going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you've been following. So point these things out to the brethren. Point it out to to the people in your church. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more holy in the eyes of God. Now, Paul's going to, he's not going to walk it back, but he's going to elaborate on this statement. Verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. He says, listen, sure, you can, you can absolutely, you can eat whatever you want. Get married as long as it's to a, a fellow believer, right? Nothing wrong with that. But along the way, still focus, right? Don't get distracted. Focus. Uh, on the other hand, verse 7: Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So he says: What's he do? What do you do? Don't pay attention to fables. You're focused, right? You're called to focus. So what do you do? You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In, in Greek, so I've been told, I don't read Greek, but in Greek, the word that we translate discipline is the word gymnasium. Go to the gym and build your godliness muscles, Paul's saying. Because he says bodily exercise or bodily discipline profits just a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Because it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. If you go to the gym and work out, good for you. That's good, right? Be healthy. Your body is a gift from the Lord. And, and, you, and we should, you know, try and live with an awareness of that. God didn't give you your body to waste. He gave you your body as a gift. But Paul says, you know, if you, if you are the healthiest person alive and, you know, you, you live your whole sugar-free, paleo, keto, gluten-free diet... And you exercise and you get your your whatever's in check and your cholesterol whatever and your carb consumption or whatever else. You know what you're going to do? You're going to die. It, it's, you are, you are going to die sooner or later. Now, it profits a little. He does say it profits a little. There is a little bit of gain. And, and you can, frankly, God knows the number of your days. But frankly, we have a good bit of input into the quality of those days by what we do with our bodies. But he says, that's great. But don't just exercise your body. Exercise your godliness. Build up muscles in godliness. Because this has benefit in the life to come and right here. Building, growing in godliness is going to have eternal rewards. And we can understand that, right? Sometimes we forget that it has earthly rewards. That that walking away from temptation is actually going to increase our ability to experience the blessings of God here on earth. That following the commands of God is gonna increase our ability to appreciate what God has done for us. And he says, this deserves full acceptance. You had better wrap your heads around this statement. That disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness is gonna bless your life here and in the future. And so he says, this is what we're striving for. We are striving For godliness. We are focusing on godliness. In verse 11, he says, prescribe and teach these things. So what do we do? We're teaching people, right? Teach people to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Anybody who wants to self-identify as young, listen up. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, Show yourself an example of those who believe. Remember, Timothy is a young guy in a in a church that is either healthy or at least has enough experience to think it's healthy. And Paul says, "Don't let anybody look down on you for being young. There are going to be old guys in this church who have never disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness, but they're going to look down on Timothy because he's young." They're going to be young people who have never disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness, but they're going to look down on Timothy because he's young. He's not old enough to have a you know, superior wisdom or whatever else. Paul says, don't you let anybody look down on you, but rather, rather, in your speech, in your actions, in your love for the people around you, in your faith, and in your purity, you set an example for them. You make them observe by your conduct that, this, that discipline for the sake of godliness is a worthwhile endeavor. They, that focus is worth, is worth it. And he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's the M.O. for our church. Right there. Until Paul shows up at our church, we're going to keep focusing on the public reading of Scripture, teaching the Scripture, and exhorting one another to live out the Scripture. Right. That's what we do. And so he says, verse 14, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the Presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So he says, hey, don't, you know, you've been given a gift from God. You've been given spiritual gifts. Every single one of us as believers have spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't neglect that. Don't lay that aside. And here in the context, he specifically appears to be talking about Timothy's gift of teaching. He says, you've been given a gift of teaching. Don't neglect that. Take pains with it. Do not say, well, I'll just dump my responsibility to teach on the Holy Spirit and he can make something happen. Paul says, no, no. You let your progress be obvious to everybody. If you guys come here on Wednesday nights routinely, you ought to be able to say, Nate's a better teacher now than he was a year ago. Not because I'm awesomer, but because I've been not neglecting what God has called me to do. And and for every single one of us in our life, there are gifts that God is calling us to. Don't neglect those. Walk in them. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so Paul's saying, so you know he's saying you've got to, do not, let this, do not let demonic doctrines creep in where people can say, oh, I'm holier or whatever, but don't also use the fact that we're all holy as an excuse for being sloppy, right? You're, you're, you are holy in the eyes of God. Nothing you can do is gonna change that. Nothing you can do is gonna make God love you more or less, but you're also called to godliness. We said in Thessalonians last week, the will of God is your sanctification, because you've been saved, he wants you to be, to be cleansed, to walk in the purity that he's inviting us to, right? We are free to walk in freedom. And a lot of times when we talk about freedom in the church, it's, it's more like I'm free to walk in this thing that's not exactly a sin. I'm free to do this. I'm free to do this. Paul's saying you're free to walk in freedom. You're free to walk in godliness. And so he's telling Timothy, you teach that to this church. Through the word of God, they have the freedom and the responsibility to walk in freedom. So verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, he's saying, hey, you're going to have to tell this to the people. So don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Nice little footnote there. Um, he says, hey, you're going to teach and rebuke and exhort and all these things, do it appropriately. There, there is a time to be stern and serious, and those are very important. But understand in the kingdom of God that you're all still part of a family. And so you don't, have, you don't have the freedom to just burn bridges wherever you want, right? If you're going to rebuke an older man, it's like you're talking to your dad. And that commands a certain amount of respect. If you're going to rebuke or exhort an older woman, it's like talking to your mom. That commands some respect and some fear and trembling. If you're gonna rebuke a younger man, it's like talking to a brother. If you're gonna rebuke a younger woman, you better make sure you're doing it appropriately and, and in purity, like you would treat your sister. Okay? So in this church, sometimes people need to be exhorted or rebuked or or lovingly corrected or whatever else. There's your game plan. Right there. There that's how you do it. Um, chapter five, he's gonna kind of just give a couple, again, practical elements for leading in a church, he's going to talk about how to determine if the church should help financially support widows and, and some criteria for that, and then he's going to jump down and talk about being elders, and when you have elders in the church, what do you do if people want to bring an accusation against the elder, and also what do you do if you need to rebuke an elder, and, and he gives some really helpful boundaries there, basically you can't, just, you can't just say, yep, we'll take any accusation against an elder, you also can't say, nope, the elder is perfect no matter what accusation come against him. So he says, here's, here's the system for rebuking sin. Here's the system for protecting an elder from false accusation. And then chapter 6, as he's just kind of wrapping up, he says in verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That's a big sentence. Paul says, if anybody's advocating a different doctrine than what I've just outlined in this book here, which is, by the way, Paul says, the words of Jesus Christ, then he's A, arrogant, and B, clueless. Nicely put. Paul says, all right, if you're going to advocate either for these doctrines of demons or for sloppiness or whatever else, that person's clueless. And they do not understand the doctrine of godliness. They do not understand that God is calling us to godliness. So when a church just refuses to talk about God's call to his church to be holy and only will ever talk about God's grace, they are failing to deliver the words of God. If a church refuses to ever talk about God's grace... They're doing the exact same thing. He says, what are these? These are men who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He says, they're going to be men who rise up, who want to teach something that sounds like the gospel for profit. They're going to suppose that, a, that faked godliness, that pretending to be a Christian minister, looking, calling yourselves a minister while having no desire to serve. These are men who think that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is an easy, cushy, Job. There are going to be people who rise up and think, I could be a pastor and work 10 hours a week and get a full time salary. That's a swanky gig right there. And that will be their motivation behind becoming a pastor. Paul says, uh uh, not happening. Uh, Verse 6 But godliness is actually a means of great gain when what? When it's accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Paul says, are you kidding me? You think that godliness is a means of gain? You're conceited and you don't know anything. Godliness is not a means of gain. Godliness is a means of great gain. Because what is it? It's eternal gain. And if you are content in this life and abiding in godliness, the gain that you are participating in, you can't fathom. You can't even comprehend it right now. Your brain is not big enough to conceive of of, of what's coming. Godliness is a means of incredible gain when it's accompanied with contentment. And contentment, Paul defines it for us very helpfully. If we have food and covering. And, and, and And he stops there. Food and clothes. That is, that's honestly not quite as much as we would like, right? Food and covering, and covering I guess could argue we mean shelter too. So food, clothes, and shelter in a car. I mean, it's the 21st century, right? And, and I mean, you know, God forbid we'd have to use a flip phone instead of an iPhone. And as long as we have food and covering and high-speed Wi-Fi, I could be content, right? No, food and clothing and godliness. That's it. In the eyes of God, that's all you need. And that is a means of great gain. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having other things. But there is something wrong if those are, are filling the pockets of your life that are supposed to be filled with godliness. He says, but those, verse 9, "...but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil." And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So a lot of times people will take this verse, or can take this verse out of context, and say, oh, the love of money is, is always bad. And, and Paul's saying, and, but in the context of this paragraph, if you're using godliness as a means of gain because of the love of money, that is going to be a root of all evil. Your life is, is going to, everything bad that comes out of your life is going to probably be stemming from that. But he's saying, some by longing for it, you basically, when you're longing, longing to be rich as sort of the end result of pretending to be godly, you're just, uh, so you're going to be plunged into ruin and destruction. If you're using material goods to fill the voids in your life that should be filled with God, then yeah, the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, but uh, Verse 11, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from, free, flee from covetousness. Flee from the desire of riches or the idea that godliness is supposed to bring you some sort of gain here on earth and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursue these things. Don't worry about false doctrines. Don't worry about myths and genealogies. You stay focused on righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, Paul says, verse 13, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is Uh, Verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Paul says, I'm charging you. He's wrapping up this letter. I am charging you. I am calling out to you. I am entreating you. I am begging you. And the word of God would say the same thing to each one of us. I am entreating you, pursue these things. Fight the good fight. Take hold of that to which you were called. You were called to ministry. You were called to serve the Lord. Take hold of that. Let that be what defines your life. Let the fact that God loves you and has called you drive everything else in your life. He says, I'm charging you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus. I'm charging you in the presence of the God who you cannot see, who has not been seen, who no man has seen, to the God who all honor and dominion belongs to. In, In the name of that God, take your call seriously. Pursue godliness. Do not pursue riches. Do not pursue myths and genealogies. Don't try and quantify your holiness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. As he's wrapping up, verse 17, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If if dinner tonight was your third meal of the day, you would qualify as rich. And so do not be conceited. Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches, riches vanish away. I forget what it is. Something like $7 trillion in the United States are just gone this year because the stock market fell. It It just... $7 $7 trillion that just no longer exist. They're just, they're just not there. Riches, I don't, I don't care how much you've got. It can all go. So verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that may, they may take hold of that which is real life indeed. If you're rich, don't fix your hope on the riches here in the world. You be rich in good works. You be rich in blessing other people. You be rich in generosity. And he says, That's your, if you do that, you're taking hold of what's really life. People talk about being rich to live a good life. Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about taking hold of real life, real living. Oh, Timothy, verse 20, as he's wrapping up, guard what has been entrusted to you. And incidentally, If you've sat here and heard the word of God, it's been entrusted to you. So guard it. Guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter, which is most of the noise that's in our world right now, and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Timothy, don't you worry about cultural relevance. You worry about the word of God. And his last four words, grace be with you. Pursue godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Don't set your mind on riches. And the grace of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's Paul's letter to Timothy. That's Paul's letter to anybody who's in the service of the kingdom of God. So Lord, thanks for your word. Please let it sink into our hearts. Let it it drive us and impact us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to live it out. God, we want to Discipline ourselves to walk in godliness. We want to take hold of that that you have set before us. Be faithful servants, faithful ministers. We thank you that, like Paul, we're we're not in ministry because we're qualified. We're in ministry because you're qualified. So have your way with us, God. Go before us, strengthen us. Use us for your kingdom, your power, your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.